Welcome, everybody. Uh, as chair of this fine organization, I stand here representing Fred Kemp, our president, CEO, our board of directors, and uh, the extended Atlantic Council family. Delighted to have you all here. Uh, some people have said, uh, why is the Atlantic Council doing Asia? Well, my response is we do Asia better than anybody else, so why not? So, well, so welcome to this iteration of programming. It really is a pleasure to welcome you to today's event, which I've really looked forward to. What's next for Asia under President-elect Trump, hosted by the Brent Scowcroft Center's Asia Security Initiative? So today's discussion is part of the initiative's Cross-Strait series, which looks to examine strategic and current affairs surrounding cross-strait relations. Thank you so much to our generous partner, the Taipei Economic and Cultural uh, Representative Office, for their engagement and support on this critical initiative. I'd also uh, like to welcome those who are watching online. Please join the conversation on Twitter using AC Asia and AC Scowcroft. As President-elect Donald Trump assembles his transition team and prepares to take office in January, his position on America's role in the Asia-Pacific region remains a bit murky. Many uh, Asian leaders are anxious about the durability of pre-existing U.S. commitments to the region and question how President Trump will placate their concerns. Now, as a former U.S. ambassador to both Singapore and China, I'm acutely aware of the importance and the sensitivities of this very dynamic region, not only for the United States as well, but for the entire global order, both ge geopolitically and economically. A crucial question remains whether the incoming Trump administration will rethink its campaign rhetoric on issues such as trade deals, labor issues, and military engagement that questioned the efficacy and importance of U.S. alliances, among other things. Today, we're very honored to have a great group of experts here to discuss their views on how the president-elect will formulate his strategy and policy to policies toward the region. They'll also discuss their views on what president-elect Trump's top priorities should be for the region for his first six months in office. David Wertheim of Foreign, Foreign Policy will moderate today's session, and we have a distinguished group of panelists, all of whom I'd like to personally thank for their time and for their efforts. Russell Xiao, Executive Director of Global Taiwan Institute. Shihoko Goto, Senior Northeast Asia Associate at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Asia Program. And my old friend, Meredith Miller, Vice President at Albright Stonebridge Group. Please join me in welcoming today's panelists. And David, I turn this floor over to you. Well, welcome everyone, uh, our audience here, as well as on the web. Thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, as we collectively attempt to use um, a bit of inductive reasoning and imagination to try to uh, parse out what's going to be happening uh, in Asia under a Trump administration. Let me first make some quick introductions. Um, at uh, your far right is Mr. Russell Xiao. Uh, he is the executive director of the Global Taiwan Institute, a nonprofit think tank dedicated to research on policy issues regarding Taiwan and the world. Xiao previously served as a senior research fellow at the Project 2049 Institute and national security fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Prior to those positions, he was the editor of China Brief at the Jamestown Foundation from October 2007 to July 2011, 
and a special associate in the International Cooperation Department at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy. And while in law school, he clerked uh, at the office of the chairman at the Federal Communications Commission and the Interagency Trade Enforcement Center at the office of the USTR. Uh, we have Ms. Uh, Shihoko Goto joining us as well. Uh, she's the Senior Northeast Asia Associate at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Asia Program, where she's responsible for research, programming, and publications on Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. She's also a contributing editor to The Globalist and a fellow of the Mansfield Foundation, Japan Foundation, US-Japan Network for the future for 2014 to 2016. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, she spent over 10 years as a journalist writing about the international political economy with an emphasis on Asian markets. As a correspondent for Dow Jones News Service and United Press International based in Tokyo and Washington, she has reported extensively on policies impacting the global financial system as well as international trade. She currently provides analysis for a number of media organizations. Uh, she was formerly a donor country relations officer at the World Bank, and she has received the Freeman Foundation's Jefferson Journalism Fellowship at the East-West Center and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation's Journalist, Journalism Fellowship for the Salzburg Global Seminar. She's fluent in Japanese and French. Uh, and finally, uh, we have Ms. Meredith Miller, Vice President at Albright Stonebridge Group, where she helps clients develop strategies for long-term growth in Southeast Asian markets. Miller has over 15 years of experience in working on U.S.-Southeast Asia relations. Prior to joining ASG, she was Senior Vice President at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where she led research programs on economic, energy, and trade issues to bring objective, detailed analyses of strategic developments in China to policymakers. Before that, Miller served at the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs as Deputy Director of the Office of Economic Policy, where she developed interagency policy on regional economic issues and U.S. engagement in the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. She also is a Southeast Asia analyst in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research and an associate director at the White House National Security Council. So we have a most impressive group. Um, and I will first give everyone a chance to uh, introduce their thoughts, uh, starting with Russell, if you're ready. OK. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. Um, and let me just uh, say, first and foremost, that uh, to thank the Atlanta Council for this wonderful opportunity to uh, address such a timely issue and to share a panel with uh, such a great group of experts, and uh, and we will try, and I will try to, um, you know, uh, again, gaze into this magic ball uh, that I have in front of me uh, and try to divine uh, what uh, President-elect Trump will uh, uh, approach to Asia will be. Um, let me just start off with three caveats. Uh, the first and foremost, which is, I think, clear to everyone, is that we know very little. I think the President-elect himself has said nothing particularly Oh, let me take a step back. My focus uh, of, my, of my discussion will be more on Taiwan, China, and cross-strait. So uh, let me lead off with, um, as what my organization's um, name suggests, is on Taiwan, the Global Taiwan Institute. So the president-elect himself has said uh, little to nothing on Taiwan, except in passing during a speech uh, in Michigan while referring to job losses. Um, so therefore, we must infer from the statements, op-eds written by people associated with him during the campaign and current during the transition process. Um, I think one consistency, one consistency in the approaches um, in terms of what a Trump administration will do to previous administrations is that they can, they can and they often do change. Um, so let me identify four, uh, four strands. Um, of what I see as President-elect Trump's uh, foreign policy thinking. And it's important to understand these four strands 
in terms of the spectrum of policy options that they represent. I think the first strand is that there is an emphasis on more burden sharing with allies and partners. Um, I think that the, he will ask allies and partners to take on more responsibilities for their own defense. Um, on the high end of this uh, policy spectrum is that there is a suggestion that there is a willingness to uh, accept uh, or uh, condone um, allies such as Japan and South Korea to uh, go nuclear. Now that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is that one interpretation is that there's a greater willingness to loosen restrictions on allied and partners' capabilities in order to take on more of the burden in their own defense. Um, given the strong emphasis, I think, that we see in sort of national security in, this, uh, uh, in the cabinet that is shaping up, uh, I believe that it is unlikely to lead to a lessening of US security uh, commitments to the region. Um, the second strand is that I think that there's going to be an emphasis on military strength in statecraft. Um, I believe that given the uh, articles that have been written so far in term by senior advisors to the campaign, most notably uh, the article that was published by Alexander Gray and Peter Navarro the day before the election, um, where that, I think the pivot or the strategic rebalance is not going away. Uh, I think the crux of that article was mostly uh, not a critique of the pivot itself, but the execution of it. Uh, what they claim to see be an under-resourced effort to try to rebalance to the Asia-Pacific. And uh, you know, this underlying theme of peace through strength, I think, underscores uh, the element of uh, military power uh, that, is, uh, that they see as essential to the, uh, the pivot. Um, secondly, a second element of this is that sequestration um, is likely to be uh, tossed out. Uh, I think that the uh, emphasis on a 300-ship navy, uh, which is up from the 272 today, also emphasizes maritime power as uh, a central uh, thrust in terms of power projection of the United States and the Asia-Pacific is predominantly a maritime theater. And so therefore, um, it seems like that this, uh, the, these sort of commitments is consistent to a, um, a, a, a security posture in the Asia Pacific that, is, uh, that does not represent much of a radical uh, uh, disengagement from the region, but perhaps even a ramping up. Less clear is, of course, is how he intends to pay for it, uh, for all the massive ramping up of while cutting taxes across the board. Um, the third is, um, I think that the conduct of his foreign policy will be more transactional. I think that he will deal uh, on foreign policy issues on a more case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I think it's hard to discern a grand strategy in such an approach. Uh, it does imply such a, a more, a less values-oriented uh, foreign policy um, posture. Um, so it does raise the question of whether or not democracy promotion um, will be, will, will, will be a, a tenant in uh, US foreign policy thinking uh, going forward. Um, his focus on, I think, bilateral relations uh, will be on more on bilateral relations than building out multilateral institution. This is uh, reflected, I think, uh, by President Trump's, President-elect Trump's um, opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, I don't think that he's necessarily anti-trade, but that he may perhaps sees this as 
a, uh, a, a disadvantageous uh, agreement where the United States has less leverage, uh, where they're engaging with a, uh, a group of uh, uh, trading partners where uh, other interests beyond perhaps what he believes is the most important, which is bringing jobs back to the United States, becomes uh, secondary to the other more strategic and arguably more, uh, some believe, more important issues uh, that, a, uh, that the TPP represents. The fourth and final strand is that I think uh, Trump's Asia policy is going to be very China-centered. Um, I think there is an emphasis in the makeup of the Asia advisors that have been at least uh, indicated by different articles that have been published where people have identified themselves as uh, advisors and members that are uh, currently on the landing teams uh, announced on the, uh, the transition team's uh, website. Um, I think many of these advisors uh, are known hawks, more security hawks. And, um, and I think while the, uh, a concentration on security hawks should reassure allies and partners concerned by China's rise, um, overemphasis on China could, could potentially have this distorting effect of presenting a more of a G2 effect. Um, now the question really at the end of the day, I think really is about how Trump defines American interests. Let's not forget that his, the whole mantra of his foreign policy thinking is America first. And now I think that there is a broad interpretation of what American interests encapsulates. And if you, you know, whether or not you include shared values within those is an important element in distinguishing between what are the priorities, uh, foreign policy priorities uh, that he has uh, going in. Um, so, uh, like you know, with these four four trans, strands um, you know in place, uh, I think you know looking at uh, burden sharing as one in the context of Taiwan, I think uh, that we can see uh, that there may be a, a more willingness to um, allow Taiwan to uh, acquire um, uh, new advanced technologies that would be that hitherto been prohibited. Uh, let's not forget that when we uh, the criticism that. Trump, President Trump-elect had with regards to uh, the burden-sharing efforts of uh, allies and partners was the indication that they had not been paying for their, you know, basically their bill. Uh, I think Taiwan, for one, actually pays for all its bills uh, for the most part, and the concern is that whether or not, uh, you know, the, uh, that Taiwan would uh, increase its defense budget enough to uh, assure a more adequate and sufficient defense capabilities going forward in the face of uh, China's growing military uh, strength. And on the emphasis on military strength and statecraft, I believe that the security posture that uh, is implied by a, uh, a stronger Navy, uh, naval presence, uh, and the a sort of strategic rebalance uh, with, a folk, with an emphasis on, on the security component um, has a reassuring effect in a, uh, uh, for the Taiwan Strait. Uh, military, uh, the coercive effects of uh, a growing military across the Taiwan Strait uh, imp uh, can negatively impact the stability in the, um, in the Taiwan Strait and across the region. And so that security posture, both not, in, in not simply isolated to the Taiwan Strait, but beyond with regards to Japan uh, and Southeast Asian countries, I think uh, can have a, uh, a stabilizing effect. The third, on uh, on tr more transactional foreign policy is where it's, it becomes a little more disconcerting with regards to whether or not um, uh, what the President-elect Trump's foreign policy may mean in a, uh, for Taiwan. I think that uh, in, 
the fact that it implies at least a less values-oriented foreign policy does sort of minimize one of the strongest assets that Taiwan has, which is the fact that it is a democracy and a thriving one at that. And for um, a lot of liberal, liberal internationalists, that the, the, the Taiwan's democracy as a, as a, as a, as a country of shared values is a, an important element in making sure that the um, making sure that the, um, the United States ma maintains strong support uh, for, uh, for Taiwan. Nevertheless, that is not to say that it is, you know, again, this is, depends on uh, uh, how he defines um, American interests. Um, on issues of, of um, to the TPP and bilateral relations, I do think that it is, um, that despite the TPP being um, likely to, um, likely to demise is that, um, that this does open the door for more, this doesn't close the door uh, for closer economic cooperation between Taiwan and the United States. I think that in a bilateral scenario, uh, he may, uh, President-elect Trump will be, may find it more um, having, uh, having a, a better sort of um, relationship, um, a negotiating relationship um, uh, for stronger uh, ties. So maybe I'll just, you know, uh, leave it at that for now and leave a lot more uh, for, uh, for Q&A later. Yes. Well, um, first of all, thank you um, to the Atlantic Council for organizing this event. Um, there is a great deal of change going on in Asia as there is in the United States and in Europe as well and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a great opportunity to actually bring, shine light on what um, U.S.-Asia relations could be uh, moving forward. Um, the topic of this discussion is what's next for Asia, and I've been asked to focus on Japan and Korea in particular. And looking back, um, challenges facing Northeast Asia have essentially remained unchanged since the presidential elections, but the possible approaches for dealing with those challenges have changed considerably. And so what are those challenges? They're essentially threats that could hamper continued growth and stability in the region, which to this day remains the most populous and the, most, um, the region with the most economic potential. And a downturn in Asia would hurt the global economy severely at a time, especially when there are so many downside risks outside, um, elsewhere in the world. And the sources of instability, as you all know, have included many factors, including um, accommodating China's rise, dealing with North Korea's nuclear ambitions being just two of the many. But now, added to that is the uncertainty about the future of a Pax Americana and essentially a US commitment to uphold the liberal international order that has been the foundation of providing the rules and the values and of course security across Asia. So now the question is, can this growing list of uncertainties actually be, be an opportunity? Could it be an opportunity for change? And it can, can it be an opportunity to provide new opportunities for growth? And if we simply look at the market reactions globally, at least initially, investors both here in the United States and overseas seem to think, think so if we simply look at um, how the markets have responded. And Certainly, there is expectation of change in how the United States might engage with Asia. 
But let's turn that conversation around and, and think about how Tokyo and Seoul might change the way they regard and engage with the United States. I think we're on a little bit more comfortable footing here because there are so many unknowns about what the, uh, the prospects for the Trump administration. And I believe that the future of trade agreements could actually be the first litmus test for how Japan and Korea might position themselves in the new regional order and, and move forward in their relations with the United States. For Japan, how it decides to pursue multilateral trade deals will certainly define its standing in the Asia Pacific and its relations with the United States. Since joining the TPP in 2013, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has made clear that TPP is much more than just a trade deal. It is an opportunity for Japan to remain an economic powerhouse, to be part of writing rules for the 21st century, and also, of course, to bolster uh, US-Japan ties. And as we all know, and as, as it was very widely covered, um, Abe was the first world leader to meet with Trump post-election. And whilst no details of that meeting were made public, Abe made clear both before and after the meeting that Japan remains committed to pushing forward with TPP. He also has made clear, um, uh, most recently yesterday in the upper house hearing on TPP, that it does not want to pursue bilateral trade relations, uh, a bilateral FTA with the United States. Now, that position conflicts directly with what Trump is envisioning. And also, um, none other than Orrin Hatch of the Senate, Senate Finance Committee has been pushing for um, a TPP solely between Japan and the United States. Um, and it may well be difficult for Abe to push back on that kind of US demand. And in, in the meantime, the deadline for the TPP looms large for um, February 2018. There is, though, a third way, and that is to complete the TPP without the United States. Now, it wouldn't, technically, it would no longer be TPP because the conditions of the TPP require that 85% of the total GDP of the 12 members need to be included for it to be ratified. Now, the, because the United States represents 62%, without the United States, no, there, there can really need be no TPP as it stands today. But TPP actually is a solid platform to establish new rules on issues that have not been covered by previous trade agreements, such as intellectual property rights, facilitating e-commerce, uh, protecting the environment, and ensuring labor standards. In short, to establish common rules for issues that would benefit from cross-border standardization. And there's much to be said about the possibility of moving forward with the deal, even without Washington instead of abandoning it altogether. Now, of course, there are other alternative trade agreements out there, not least RCEP, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. And indeed, negotiations for RCEP continue to this day. But RCEP's focus is really on reducing tariff barriers rather than creating new rules that will meet the needs of industries shaping the economic landscape in the coming decades. So, if TPP without the United States does move forward, then Japan 
will become the single biggest economy that will need to push it forward. And this would be an opportunity for Abe to promote Japan as a leader in, in Asia and beyond to ensure stability and adherence to a new liberal economic order. And we should also bear in mind that Abe has actually end not, has ended the curse of the revolving door of Japanese prime ministers that's plagued the country from 2006 to 2012. Six prime ministers in as many years. Ironically, he's actually the most, one of the most stable leaders um, in the G7. Um, he's now in his fourth, uh, fourth year of office, and the ruling Liberal Democratic Party has recently changed rules so that he could stay on for a third term and could potentially be in office until 2021 and not 2018. Opposition to the LDP is weak, and expectations for Abe to win yet another uh, election are quite high. That gives Abe unprecedented power, and it gives him the ability to focus on broad legacy building issues, which could certainly include redefining Japan's role in the world. And with the United States and Europe, with the exception of Germany under Angela Merkel, becoming increasingly inwardly focused, expectations for Japan to take on a greater role in promoting development of international rules and global, global institutions, boosting collective security, tackling global issues such as climate change could actually rise. And promoting TPP with 11 member countries instead of 12 could actually be that first step. So, but what about Korea then? Korea was never part of the TPP, but it has one of the largest number of FTAs in the world. It actually has bilateral um, agreements with 10 of the 12 member countries, including the United States. It's just really missing Japan and Mexico. It also has a bilateral FTA with China. Tokyo, Japan, on the other hand, has neither an FTA with the United States nor an FTA with, with China. So that puts Korea in a fairly strong position. However, before the US election, Seoul was really looking to be one of the first entrants to TPP post-ratification. Firstly, to, and most obviously, to have access to the Japanese and Mexican markets. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, to be part of an ambitious multilateral trade deal and have the TPP conditions for entry as a lever, a leverage to push through domestic structural reform, to encourage deregulation and to bolster domestic demand and, and enhance competitiveness. That's changed though, given, as Russell said, um, TPP is unlikely to actually uh, move forward anytime soon under a, a Trump administration. I think we're all fairly clear on that. Um, in light of that, Korea has two major concerns regarding trade. And first of all is the future of Chorus, the uh, bilateral uh, Korea-US free trade agreement. Trump has repeatedly said on the campaign trail 
and also since he's been elected that he would consider renegotiating NAFTA. And I believe yesterday too he said that NAFTA was terrible. So, <laughs> but we're not really too sure how t what makes it so terrible and what he would do to make it better, um, except that he, perhaps he wants to stop um, U.S. jobs going to Mexico, but he has certainly threatened to impose a 35% tariff on automobiles assembled in Mexico. Now, no specific action has been prescribed against Chorus, but Chorus has actually been come under attack on the campaign trail. And the fact that Chorus is actually not a one-way street, that U.S. service exports to Korea have increased over the last four years since Chorus was put into effect, that copyright protection has been enhanced since post-Chorus, and that Korean investments into the United States have increased, they have really not uh, been played up. The second issue um, that Korea will be facing um, on the trade front with a new administration will be worries about Trump declaring countries as currency manipulators. Now, Treasury, in its latest congressional report released in October, found that no major trading partner, including China, is deliberately weakening, weakening its currency to make exports competitive. But that hasn't stopped um, Trump as candidate repeating on the campaign trail that on day one in office, he would declare China as a currency manipulator. And that hasn't actually, and China has not been labeled as such since 1994. That said, we should bear in mind that Treasury did say that China was on its so-called monitoring list, along with Korea and Japan, as well as Taiwan and Germany and Switzerland. And accusations of currency manipulation by Trump would be of concern for obvious reasons to Korea and Japan. And finally, um, the political uncertainty facing Korea right now is not helping matters. Uh, for in we have specific examples of that. Um, hopes for resuming talks about a Japan-Korea currency swap deal, which was established in 2001, which expired in 2015, have been postponed. And the Japanese finance minister, Taro Aso, said yesterday that it was not easy to move forward on it, even if Japan wanted to move forward with a currency swap deal, because it's not clear who Japan should be negotiating with. Also, um, there's a China-Japan-Korea trilateral meeting in Tokyo in two weeks' time, and we're still not sure whether Park Kune will be, we, will be there or not. And what we do know about Trump is that personal relations do matter, and this leadership vacuum in Seoul puts Korea at a disadvantage in establishing ties with the incoming administration. So, um, in conclusion, I wanted to also say that how would we measure the success of uh, the Trump administration um, in office, in the first 100 days of office? I might argue that its biggest success will be to not do anything, uh, because there has been a lot of rhetoric and there has been a lot of anxiety. But at the same time, um, the uh, those in nominated to the cabinet as well as the president-elect himself does not have a great deal of experience in governance 
Um, and so non-action in the first 100 days would indicate that the United States under the new administration is prepared to analyze, to listen, to observe, to watch. So thank you. Thank you so much. Meredith. Great. Uh, thank you. Well, um, in talking about uh, the incoming administration's policy towards Southeast Asia, I'm also going to start with uh, two caveats. Uh, the first one being that um, President-elect uh, Trump had said very little, uh, almost nothing, about Southeast Asia to date. Uh, and thus far, the people who've been appointed to senior positions in the incoming administration um, are also individuals who don't have a lot of uh, experience or history in engaging with Southeast Asia. Uh, so um, there are more unknowns than there are knowns. Um, with that in mind, I thought I would, uh, just to kick off our discussion here today, and we're looking forward to the exchange with all of you, um, start with some thoughts on where we are now in terms of U.S. relations with Southeast Asia, and also what the core areas of concern are for Southeast Asians as they look at the new administration and what changes that might bring uh, to our engagement uh, in the region. Uh, the second caveat is that Southeast Asia is a very diverse place. I'm talking about 10 countries uh, with very different political systems, uh, different religious majorities, different opinions within each country, and different relations with the United States. So forgive me uh, for the necessity of generalizing so that we can get to the discussion part of the program. Um, First off, uh, where are we now? We're coming out of uh, eight years of a concerted effort by the Obama administration to elevate relations with Southeast Asia as part of the administration's overall rebalance to Asia. Um, this has translated into a cabinet-wide effort to improve bilateral cooperation across a range of issues uh, and notable improvements in our relations, um, I would say, with uh, Vietnam and Myanmar in particular. Um, as well as a focused effort by President Obama to elevate relations with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is the preeminent regional institution. Um, the administration did this by institutionalizing uh, annual uh, bilateral U.S. ASEAN summits, by uh, joining and, having, and participating at the presidential level in the East Asia summit, and a number of initiative aimed, uh, initiatives aimed at strengthening ASEAN as an institution. Um, and this was done uh, in part uh, due to uh, the assessment of the Obama administration that ASEAN as a multilateral institution had a very important role to play in counterbalancing uh, China's growing uh, economic and strategic clout, uh, as well as its growing assertiveness in pressing its territorial claims in the South China Sea. Um, so turning to uh, what are Southeast Asians uh, thinking of the new administration, um, first, the U.S. is a very important uh, strategic and economic partner. Um, U.S. leadership on issues such as human rights, democracy promotion, and climate change um, have also been uh, notable factors in, in helping to, to impact thinking and policy throughout the region. And they're anxious to uh, find out uh, what the new administration is going to do in all of these arenas and anxious to work with the new administration. So Southeast Asian leaders were very quick to offer their congratulations uh, to President-elect Trump and to seek to speak with him. Prime Minister Najib's already had a phone call. I understand uh, President Duterte will be speaking with him uh, very soon as well. 
And uh, they're looking to the core issues that you know, we've heard about from my fellow panelists here this morning as well. So first, on trade. Um, the US, as I said, a very important market for Southeast Asia, important source of investment. Uh, and uh, Southeast Asia is increasingly uh, investing here in the, South, in the United States as well, I should say. Um, and they're anxious to see what the attitude of the new administration is going to be, not only towards trade relationships within the region, um, but overall trade policy. So the prospect of uh, heightened trade tensions or a trade war between China and Japan is also concerning to Southeast Asians. The supply chains in the region are very much integrated uh, to those two markets um, with an eye towards exporting to the United States. Uh, and that would certainly have a damaging impact. Um, second on TPP, uh, TPP has four uh, members of ASEAN uh, who are a party to the agreement. Um, all of whom were sharply disappointed by the um, negative rhetoric about the agreement from both sides on the campaign trail and the announcement from the, Obama, or the Trump administration that they would withdraw. Um, for Vietnam in particular, um, this is a, a real blow. Uh, the government of Vietnam was looking towards TPP to help drive more trade liberalization and diversify their economic dependence away from, from China, where they're also engaged in uh, territorial contestation in the South China Sea. And I would say for Singapore, which has long championed TPP as a tool for anchoring US economic leadership in the region. Um, for others, uh, there may have been some relief. And in fact, it was expressed publicly in some quarters in the region. Uh, particularly in uh, countries who were not a party to the agreement and were concerned about uh, the potential trade diversi diversification impacts. Um, and uh, the debate about the benefits of free trade and globalization, of course, is not uh, unique to the United States. Uh, it's taking place throughout Southeast Asia. And uh, for some countries who are debating whether or not they might want to join uh, TPP in the future, like Korea, um, this takes the pressure off of, of those who would be more resistant to opening their economies further, at least in the short term. So as my fellow panelists have noticed, the, the Trump administration has indicated that they would uh, perhaps look to negotiate bilateral trade agreements um, with TPP members or other uh, economic partners. Um, but so far, nothing's been said about Southeast Asia. We have one FTA in the ASEAN region uh, with Singapore. Um, it seems uh, quite reasonable to expect that the new administration, if it does pursue a course of negotiating bilateral FTAs, is going to have to engage in an exercise of prioritizing where their efforts will be focused. And I think it's a really a, an open question and whether or not uh, Southeast Asian economies would, would make the cut in, the, in that first uh, tranche. Um, the UK, I believe, is, and Japan are the, are the two that have received the most attention and focus uh, thus far. Um, on security, um, this is also an area uh, where Southeast Asian countries will be watching very closely how uh, the alliance relationships with uh, Korea and Japan develop, which have been a stabilizing factor in the region, um, but also how the U.S. will approach our alliances with the Philippines and Thailand, and efforts begun in the Obama administration to increase and help uh, countries in the region boost their capacity in the maritime arena, um, particularly uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. 
Um, Trump uh, has indicated uh, a preference for bilateral trade agreements. Perhaps we'll see more of a focus on bilateral uh, security cooperation as well. Um, but I think that really uh, remains an open question, um, as well as the question of, of how uh, the new administration will approach the situation in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier a real emphasis in the Obama administration on multilateralism. Um, I think that's a question as well, to what extent uh, the new administration will view ASEAN as, as an important tool in um, uh, maintaining the status quo uh, and, and peace in the South China Sea. Um, it is worth noting, um, as, as we heard earlier, that uh, some people close uh, to President Trump, or President-elect Trump, have, have said that uh, increasing naval capacity is important, and, and that's an important dimension of maintaining preeminence uh, in, in Asia. Uh, presumably, that has a strong component for the South China Sea. But again, um, that really remains to be seen. Um, on human rights and, and climate change, I want to mention these two just briefly. Um, there's been an assumption among many uh, constituencies in Southeast Asia that the new administration will have less of an emphasis on democracy promotion and human rights. Um, there's been very little discussion of these two areas as foreign policy priorities uh, to date uh, from the president-elect or his surrogates. Um, in some quarters, this is, is a welcome development. Um, President Duterte in the Philippines has uh, essentially said so. Um, this could also potentially, a decreased emphasis on human rights might uh, help to thaw the chill in U.S.-Thai relations, um, which have been tense over U.S. Uh, criticism of military rule there uh, and the overall human rights situation. And certainly other countries in the region as well, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Cambodia, I could go on, um, will also be uh, relieved perhaps to have less commentary and perceived interference from the US uh, in that arena. Um, for civil society organizations and democracy activists around the region, um, there have also been strong expressions of concern about this. Um, perhaps uh, most notably, and an area where I think there's more unanimity of view uh, within Southeast Asia on the importance of U.S. leadership uh, is on promoting um, religious tolerance and religious diversity. Uh, and we've already seen some reactions within the region to uh, a perceived change uh, in the U.S. Uh, coming out of the rhetoric on our campaign trail, um, particularly um, in some of the comments that were made about uh, restricting access to the United States uh, for Muslims, um, as well as compiling a database of Muslims in the country. Um, this triggered very strong responses, uh, particularly in Indonesia, which is a majority Muslim country, um, and we see uh, petitions circulating there to ban uh, Trump from entering the country and to um, uh, push his businesses out of Indonesia, um, and also a sharpening over the last two months uh, in, uh, over identity issues. I don't know if any of you had a chance to see the pictures of the protests that took place in Jakarta um, Friday, Jakarta time, um, but it's, it's really quite stunning. And this is over uh, perceived slight uh, to Islam that was um, from a comment that a Christian politician uh, made. I'm not, I'm not attributing this to Donald Trump, but I do think that there's, there's a hardening of identity politics in the region, and some of the U.S. campaign rhetoric has fed into that. 
Um, on the other side of the equation in Myanmar, we saw nationalist Buddhist uh, groups uh, who have been campaigning to evict uh, the Muslim min minority Rohingya, uh, welcoming uh, Trump's uh, election victory as a valid validation of their position and, and support for the, the war against Islam. So I think uh, when the new administration comes in, one of the areas that I hope will be addressed immediately is longstanding U.S. commitment to religious freedom, uh, religious tolerance, and religious diversity. On um, climate change, uh, there's also, I think, an open question about uh, to what extent U.S. programs to help with uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation uh, will continue. So um, I'll, I'll wrap up just by saying that more questions than answers at this stage. Uh, Obviously, U.S. policy is driven by a number of different facets. Presidents are very important in setting priorities and tone. Um, but uh, it's also very important to look at the role that the business community will, will play in supporting and shaping economic policy um, and in the role that Congress will play where we have many uh, longtime Asia hands and people who have deep experience in Southeast Asia and will be um, looking for ways to continue uh, the strong relationships and cooperation we have there. Um, as well, important, I think, to say that the reasons for the rebalance and the focus on Southeast Asia uh, in the Obama administration are compelling, uh, and uh, it's my, my belief and my hope uh, that uh, they will be uh, equally compelling to the incoming administration, and we'll see continued progress. And I will stop there. Well, thank you so much. Um, I will uh, keep my remarks and questions short so that we can get to what I'm sure um, is a surfeit of audience questions uh, for this gang. So, uh, Russell, you, you referred to a, an article that Alexander Gray and Peter Navarro, both advisors mm -hmm. yes. uh, to the Trump campaign, had published the day before the election in Foreign Policy, which you know everyone should read all the time. Um, <laughs> I'd like to read very briefly because I was attempting to sort of read the tea leaves as I looked at this article with the benefit of hindsight. Um, so it, it's, it, it starts with a very fulsome critique of sort of everything that uh, the authors feel has gone wrong um, in Asia uh, under the Obama administration. And then it it gets to Trump's approach and it says, Trump's approach is two-pronged. First, Trump will never again sacrifice the US economy on the altar of foreign policy by entering into bad trade deals like NAFTA, allowing China into the WTO and passing the proposed TPP. Uh, these deals only weaken our manufacturing base and ability to defend ourselves and our allies. So I think that clearly signals that jobs, you know, that, that, that to some extent the animating question even behind foreign policy might be well, what does this do for American jobs at home? Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit different from America first, which I would assume uh, is, has been the prerogative of every president, um, you know, putting American interests. But the question of how those interests are defined mm -hmm. seems to be focused on jobs. Um, and I'll get to my question in a second. Sure. So then in this article moves on. Uh, that's it for the first prong. The second prong, which is articulated uh, in much more depth, is Trump will steadfastly pursue, as Russell said, a strategy of peace through strength an axiom of Ronald Reagan that was abandoned under the Obama administration. Uh, and then it does talk about upping the US Navy you know, from 274 ships to 350 over time. And so my question, for, my question for any or all of you is, so we, we have an incoming president that uh, seems less, certainly less interested at this time in sort of leading on the values front than his predecessor. 
um, a, a more what sounds like um, a more forceful push into the South China Sea, uh, a emphasis on bilateral negotiations as opposed to multilateral negotiations, which is an approach that China has long favored. Um, and, and a president who, in his initial interactions with foreign leaders, has been shooting from the hip a little bit. I think that's fair to say. Um, and how those signals will be picked up and how those signals will sort of cascade through foreign capitals is something we're all watching with interest in real time. The question is, do you see an outcome in uh, two years, four years, however many years, that is actually, do we reach a more stable equilibrium in Asia somehow? Because the signals so far seem to suggest a less stable Asia. Um, the future is unknown, but can we talk a little bit about what a more stable Asia might look like? What is the path to more stability? Do we, is there one under the set of, of principles and approaches that's been articulated? I mean, your suggestion was sort of try to do not nothing, but try to stay calm for the first hundred days. Um, that suggests to me that, that there, we don't have a clear picture of how this is, Asia is going to get more stable. Does anyone want to hazard a, an answer to how that might look, the optimist case for the Asia Pacific? I guess I would start by Please. saying that you know it's we don't know, um, but um, at the same time, however, I think that in this sort of paradigm shift that appears to be um, taking place under this new um, the president-elect's uh, sort of vision, where there's going to be a less emphasis on the existing multilateral institutions that have been built out um, over the uh, the previous administrations. That there will be a uh, that he's going to replicate this, uh, will replace that with a um, a series of transactional agreements with bilateral uh, agreements between uh, powers in the region, between U.S. and China, U.S. and Japan, um, you know, U.S. Southeast Asia, and also U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, that will create a that will. You know, um, an ideal scenario, create a new equilibrium, right? I think that there, in this transition process, there's going to understandably be a a period of uh, of instability, well, uh, a a a period of um, uh, you know, sort of expectations that we um, that that will have to be uh, assessed and 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 reassessed, um, and uh, so. How long that time horizon will be, where we sort of reach this uh, new equilibrium, is um, is hard to say. I think it's going to uh, be determined by how he, this president-elect, when he comes into the office, reinforces um, the uh, whether he reinforces the uh, some of the the key, I think, crucial uh, security arrangements uh, that exist already bilaterally. Um, and whether or not that unbalance will uh, help to provide some new uh, new anchors uh, for stability. Um, can, and I, so, can I jump in and, yeah, sure, and ask you about uh, and, and pick on uh, you two when it comes to North Korea? Mm -hmm. um, feel free to answer as well, Meredith. Do you see a new equilibrium or new equation there? Because that was that's been one of the the, the big bugbears for the campaign. They've repeatedly criticized the what they say is the failure of, of the Obama administration's strategic patience. Um, is there going to be something, something new that, that breaks the, what appears to be existing stalemate between the U.S. and China, the inability to even really have a discussion about you know, what a post 
Kim Dynasty uh, mm -hmm. Korea looks like? Well, I think one of the biggest risks for the um, new administration will be the new North Korea situation. And inaction will not be a, a, a choice um, should North Korea respond in those first 100 days. And I think the instinctive reaction of the new president would be to respond. Mm -hmm. And that response, traditionally until now, has, under Obama, has been to really look to China to pay, pay that key role. The real difference from here on out is going to be what expectations does the United States have for China to play a role, and, and how does China respond? And can we actually work more with China? What are our expectations for China to be involved will be the biggest factor in, in this. And you mentioned the, a, a more China-centric policy mm -hmm. uh, under under this incoming administration. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because that's interesting. Because they spend sure. so much time, you know, criticizing the, US, the current approach to China. Right. It's too accommodating. That's the inference that I drew in terms of having a both on the sort of the personnel front, in which people that are um, you know supposedly advising the president elect now uh, do have um, uh, are uh, much more um, China focused in their area of, uh, in their in their portfolio. Um, the the sort of underlying premise in terms of that uh, that assessment is that. Um, the approach to Asia foreign policy um, can be, in my, in my view, divided into diff two different sort of frameworks, right? One framework is the sort of the, you know, in order to get Asia right, you have to get China right. And the other approach is that in order to get Asia right, you have to get the alliances and the partnerships right. And, um, and with the emphasis, uh, and while in the previous administration, well, the current, I'm sorry, excuse me, the current administration, um, Obama administration, you've seen the, um, the emphasis of a lot of uh, Asia hands in the, uh, in the government, where the emphasis have been in making sure that the, uh, the alliances and the partnerships are, uh, are, 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 are grown, uh, are nurtured, and are uh, strengthened in order to uh, create a more, um, uh, you know, sort of a stable environment. Um, however, with this sort of the, but in, in that effort, it seems that I think that the critique that the, um, the incoming administration has with regards to uh, getting the China policy uh, um, uh, wrong was that this has created, at the same time, an environment wherein um, China is, um, that without the emphasis of a stronger sort of military presence there, has sort of emboldened China and sort of made China to become more, uh, more, um, more willing to be uh, provocative uh, and aggressive and sort of pushing out the line uh, in the uh, territorial disputes in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And um, so this sort of China-centric approach could sort of uh, could turn in two different ways. Uh, and one hand is to sort of that it's going to become a more, it could become more accommodating in the sense that we need to deal with China in order to create a new modus vivendi in order to ensure that ensure stability. Now, on this point, I do want to add that there are some, uh, you know, calls within uh, some think tanks within Washington that, in order to sort of create this new, sort of new, uh, sort of stable Asia, um, that there are uh, there are uh, recommendations to uh, retract uh, the six assurances uh, to uh, Taiwan. Now, I, I just want to say that I think that that is a very destabilizing uh, proposition, 
and one that I think we can see as credibility in the uh, Asia Pacific and at a time of you know, transition uh, that to weaken sort of U.S. support towards uh, Taiwan uh, would uh, be a, um, would have a devastating effect on, uh, on, on U.S. diplomacy uh, in the Asia Pacific. Um, that said, the, you know, the other side in terms of how it turns is that you have a more security-oriented approach, a more sort of uh, a, a stronger or sort of, you know, in the words of, you know, I think in the articles that, uh, that you've cited in the Alexander uh, Gray's and Navarro's piece, um, that the, the, the weakening of sort of U.S. posture from a de-emphasis on the military component of the rebalance to a uh, predominantly trade focus mm -hmm has sort of, sort of taken U.S. policy off track. And so in a way, I sort of see that the uh, income administration sort of sees that this is a necessary re, uh, sort of a re-evaluation of that policy to become more focused on um, the, you know, on security. And so I think that that, you know, that will weigh on how the sort of China-centric uh, approach will, uh, may turn out again. Thank you. Shihoku, you mentioned something intriguing, which is a potentially rebooted TPP with Japan as the leading economy. Can you talk about how, how likely you think that is to happen? And Meredith, I'd love to hear you know, what you think about um, certain South Asian nations acceding to that and how feasible that might actually be, a post-US TPP. Um, right now, um, within Japan, there is the leadership has not expressed any real appetite to do uh, what I would call a TPP-11. That said, there are those who are, um, who have committed to this trade agreement, which does have new aspects that are, that go beyond tariff reduction that really should be salvaged. So there are two ways to salvage this, either to keep those parts uh, the non-tariff side intact and have a kind of agreement to pursue amongst the member, member countries minus the United States, or um, to have these, uh, I'm almost hub and spoke type of approach to trade agreements to have the United States and to have these bilateral agreements. I do think though, Abe has, Abe is, very interested in his legacy. And he is very, he is almost a, he, there, there is similarity between the whole slogan, make America great again, and um, Abe going, promoting a, a beautiful Japan, and, and harking back to history, and harking back to the glory days of Japan. And, it's, and it depends on who, uh, how you de determine what the, those glory days, when they were. But, um, but I'm hoping that it's actually the glory days of the, 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 uh, Japan at its economic height and its ability to influence um, uh, the international order. And if that is the case, then TPP should be an opportunity and it would be an opportunity for Japan to promote itself, not just because this is a trade agreement, but because it is, it represents something, some far, beyond that, because it does um, represent something about multilateral cooperation. It represents something about uh, the ability to adhere to a common uh, rule of law that is, that is reached in a democratic procedure, and that would appeal 
to the Japanese public and certainly to the current Japanese leadership. Meredith, do you have any thoughts on how appealing this would be outside of Japan? Yeah, for, Southeast, for the Southeast Asian members of TPP. Um, well, as I mentioned, Singapore already has an, an FTA uh, with the US and with many of the TPP members. Um, I think for the emerging economies that are members of, of TPP, it certainly would be challenging to think about going forward with agreement without the United States. Um, there were some very significant concessions made on the part of uh, Vietnam and Malaysia, um, really at the result of direct U.S. pressure that I think will be uh, a particularly bitter pill to swallow um, if one of the rewards for that is not access to the U.S. market. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's, it's off the table, but uh, it certainly, at the very least, I think would require some uh, significant uh, debates uh, and possibly a reopening of the agreement um, for those economies to most likely be willing to move forward um, with the agreement. Um, that said, I, I do hope that the, the new administration does take another look at TPP and tries to address any uh, remaining concerns rather than uh, completely scrapping it uh, because, as um, Shihoko said earlier, it does provide a very important um, set of rules uh, for economic engagement in the region. And for some countries, some people in Vietnam have already said, okay, well, we're gonna refocus our attention on the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a mega FTA that ASEAN is negotiating with six uh, FTA partners, including China. And needless to say, the US is not a member of RCEP, and RCEP doesn't establish um, or address issues of core concern um, for US corporations. So uh, I think it would be a hard path to walk, which isn't to say that it might eventually become the only option, but um, I certainly hope. If I could just be. add to that, if that, you know, if it's the R step path, then not only is the United States not part of it, China is actually part of it. And when we talk about, you know, is two years, four years down the line, is Asia going to be much more unstable? There is, there is potential for stability, but increasingly that stability, source of stability is coming, not from the United States, mm -hmm. but from China. And that would certainly, RCEP would actually add to that, um, that dimension as well. And on that note, I'll shelve the thousand other questions I have and open it up to the audience. We've got about 20, 25 minutes left. Um, so please feel free to raise your hand. And I think someone will, will, will someone approach you with a microphone. Yes. Um, you, sir, see your hand up. Hi, my name is Hampton Dowling. I'm just an independent consultant. And uh, it's interesting. I kind of sense how you all feel about the incoming President-elect and his policies. But, uh, you know, just a sort of reminder, you know, the, the only, all the presidents since Nixon didn't have a very good fundamental understanding of international um, business uh, relationships. Uh, the last guy, I think, was uh, Nixon, and he had a kind of a young guy named Kissinger to help him out. And since then, uh, you know, not everybody's been backstopped with a lot of folks. I think call President Obama wasn't even quite sure where Columbia was during an interesting 60 Minutes interview. So, you know, I, I think we have to kind of give him a little bit of slack, but he does have a business around the world, so he probably does have a fair understanding of geography. Um, TPP, you know, uh, it is interesting. And bilateral agreements uh, are important. I just left a senator's office, a Democrat senator's office, and he had all 3,500 pages of the document printed on the desk next to him. Uh, previously, a proponent of it looked at it and said, there's just no way. 
uh, his analysis was, well, we just went through a 2,600-page healthcare bill, and we, that had its own interesting fallout domestically. So his perspective changed. Interesting. And lastly, you know, the Fortune 500 CEOs, I think all but three are in favor of this trade agreement for different reasons, but they're all business-centric. My question is, you know, let's just assume for a minute that this guy gets it right. Let's say he lowers taxes. We bring a lot of cash that is in Southeast Asia, from Asia, from Europe back to the U.S., that we actually drive productivity up to being something more than 0.08%, which is our, I think, the revised revision to the revision of the latest GDP rates for the U.S. It does get up to 3%. What happens if there are some positive aspects about us being able to export? We have higher employment our currency stability, our, the value of our currency is, is, is strengthened, and uh, our reputation, our brand around the world at the, at the ministerial and presidential level increases. If all those things actually come to pass, what does that do from, in terms of your perspectives, uh, given what you've laid out so far, which is basically that the status quo is really what's, what's really the, the gold standard, and anything else may be somewhat negative in outcome? At least so that's what you, I was hearing. Your, your question is, what a wonderful outcome for the United States. Well, not a wonderful. I'm just saying if the there are certain States. things come to pass that he's proposed, he may fail, but he got elected. So, I mean, what if he, if he, you know, what if those things that he wants to do domestically do occur? <clears throat> what does that do in terms of the issues that you've raised uh, with, from the perspective of concerns that uh, ASEAN countries might have with the United States? I'd be happy to add just sure. to kick it off, um, and you know, even though I didn't address the sort of the trade issues as much, is that I think you have to, just, um, to look at trade from both a uh, tactical and a strategic level. And I think the, the TPP has been an approach at a strategic level of looking at trade, uh, building up uh, trade relations with, through multilateral institutions and building new standards. That is a long game. Um, and so while I agree that you know, perhaps through a bilateral approach there could be tactical gains in the, in the immediate term, when we're talking about a much more sort of a geopolitical strategy, um, building out these multilateral institutions where there are high level, levels of uh, uh, trade standards that would be abide by by the member countries, uh, that could potentially be a, in a long-term gain of the United States. Um, so um, I think it's important to look at, you know, distinguish between what might be a tactical and a strategic uh, a gain in terms of uh, engaging um, in trade relations with uh, other countries. If I could add to sure. that. Um, TPP has been a proxy word for globalization, which has also been synonymous, has been a proxy word for jobs lost, opportunities lost, um, a, a, an income divide in the United States. And I would like nothing more than the current president-elect Trump to succeed on his economic policies. Um, but at the same time, the success is not just measured in terms of US GDP. It's measured, this election has told us very well that it's about um, ensuring greater equity, um, creating more opportunities across the board, and that will be a huge challenge. And one of the problems that all trade agreements um, tend to have, and certainly for TPP, um, it, it hasn't had the ability to offset the jobs that would have been destroyed um, or the lost opportunities. It, it should have come 
hand in hand with domestic policy prescriptions to, for job training, to invest in local communities and what have you. If there is a lesson to be learned today right now, it is to, to understand that. And I hope that there will be recognition to, to invest more in education, in, in job training, and to know that there are certain things that are coming our way. Automation, technological advancements will destroy even more jobs. And there will be um, you know, self-driving cars, um, drones delivering goods. Those will be um, tremendously destructive. And if we can't deal with coal miners being unemployed right now, how are we going to deal with truckers being unemployed because of automated cars? How are we going to deal with truck drivers, not uh, delivery people not being able to work because drones are taking their place? That's what we really need to think about. Other questions? Yes, sir, you. Hi, my name is Ben, and I'm from the Carnegie Endowment. So my question goes to Ms. Goto. So I was wondering, how would you assess Prime Minister Abe's idea, maybe Abe finding a rationale to promote revising the Constitution, given the context that U.S. is pressuring Japan to share more burden of the alliance? Thank you. Right. Um, for, for those of you, um, just to recap, Japan has um, what's, um, a, what's called a pacifist constitution, and there has been debate um, over the years about rev uh, revising what's called Article 9. Um, instead of revising it, the, Jap uh, the Japanese government has reinterpreted it. So no words have changed, but uh, Japan is more active in collective self-defense operations. Um, there is, because of the scenario I, out, I outlined about Abe gaining more strength, there is speculation that he would now want to revise, reword the Constitution, that the Japanese self-defense uh, uh, military uh, operations would no longer be the SDF, the self-defense force. It would be something else. It's not just about self-defense. It can play offense as much as defense. There is. Given the public, it would be a very controversial um, F, uh, initiative, but the momentum is gaining ground. And given it should President-elect Trump uh, voice more concern about the sustainability of the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance as it stands now, I think there will be a, a greater call um, to revise the Constitution. But um, the reading from in Tokyo right now is that the, that the alliance will remain um, largely unchanged, that it would, it would be solid, so that momentum may not necessarily be there. Yes, sir, you're right in the front. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Ames Brown. I'm chairman of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity here in D.C. and in Texas. Uh, just quickly, I wondered if any of you had any thoughts on North Korea under a Trump administration, um, and also uh, if you happen to have any feelings towards the uh, any advances or uh, uh, detractions from the Hong Kong chief executive election in uh, 2018 or 2017, rather. Thank you very much.
so North Korea, I think we, we've discussed a little bit. Uh, uh, and any mm -hmm. thoughts on, is the question about how Trump yeah, might how Trump affect the uh, chief executive election as well yeah, as the- Yeah, in, in, in uh, Hong Kong, you know, is it, is, many people are thinking uh, uh, there would be perhaps a little perception of less support for uh, advances in dem democratic outcomes. I mean, to the degree that right now that the U.S. is actively engaged in the Hong Kong democratic process, though, I mean, that's, I mean, I guess the uh, that 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 you know that's the question, right? Um, but go, I mean, I think uh, uh, maybe a, a ancillary uh, sort of uh, point to the question about Hong Kong, which you know I would like to draw back into the you know the um, the cross-strait equation, and that is you know with the sort of pro-democracy movements that's been uh, happening in Hong Kong. Um, I think it really shines a, 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 a spotlight on the shortcomings of the model that uh, that the um, that the central government in China has uh, employed to um, you know entice um, uh, the people of Hong Kong to um, to to um, to feel to win the hearts and minds of the people there, and I think that you know it is really shooting itself in the foot um, you know in terms of its heavy-handed approach. Uh, towards Hong Kong, and and certainly, it, I think it has a, a, a great deal of effect on uh, the people of Taiwan uh, as they look at you know Hong Kong as you know really the model by which right now Beijing is holding out as the model by which it hopes to uh, unify with uh, Taiwan. So, uh, you know, I think that the um, it, it's it's certainly a, an important matter that you raise in terms of you know democracy in Hong Kong and what happens there. Um, and um, and you know I, I hope that the incoming administration will pay more attention to um, you know the democratic process there um, and elsewhere in Asia. Uh, but I think the priorities of this incoming administration, as I've, as I've outlined, at least inferred from the the different strands that have uh, identified that um, that you know we will. It remains to be seen whether that is in, you know in fact the case. I know you've had your hand up, sir. John Zan with CTI TV of Taiwan. Um, Mr. Shaw, you mentioned that, uh, you mentioned actually President-elect Trump's transactional diplomacy. Now, um, will Taiwan um, be likely to be a partner or principal in this transactional diplomacy or a bargaining chip in his, you know, uh, uh, pursuit of a grand bargain? with China. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, other panelists, you are welcome to uh, chat in. Thank you. Well, that is, a, that is an excellent question. And it's, um, you know, I, I think to uh, the, the role that Taiwan uh, plays in this incoming administration, I think, um, may be inferred from um, several places. Uh, I think one needs to also look at the Republican platform uh, which uh, includes um, a unprecedented, uh, you know, uh, support uh, for a stronger uh, U.S.-Taiwan uh, ties. That included, I think, the uh, inclusion of the six assurances within the party platform, and with Reese Priebus, uh, who is the chairman of the Republican National Committee, as the chief of staff to uh, President-elect Trump. Um, I in, infer from that that there will be, you know, um, stronger support or uh, 
you know, for Taiwan in this incoming administration, and a less likelihood that uh, Taiwan would be utilized as a bargaining chip vis-a-vis -vis China. That being said, um, you know, I think that there are strategic forces at work that does, um, you know, um, weigh upon, uh, you know, the um, approach that the United States will take with uh, the Asia-Pacific being that there will be a much more China-centric approach. But in terms of how that, how that approach turns, again, like I mentioned, it, it could turn either of two ways. Why one is sort of the G2 effect where that, you know, there'd be a much more accommodating uh, sort of posture to try to create a new modus vivendi, in which case, um, you know, uh, the interest of, of a stronger U.S.-Taiwan ties may be, you know, sacrificed um, as a result of that. Um, but in my opinion, I think that that is less likely uh, in this incoming administration than more likely because, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, that the, uh, that the incoming administration, I think, has, um, you know, the, the viewpoints of those that appear to be, uh, that appears to be advising uh, Trump on Asia policy issues uh, do tend to be uh, more security and uh, oriented and uh, I think see the strategic challenge that uh, China uh, presents in the longer term, and so would actually see Taiwan as more of a strategic asset than actually as a, as a liability um, in that regard. And so, um, and so that's you know, how I would sort of you know, approach the, your, your question with regards to whether or not Taiwan uh, may uh, become a bargain chip. I think it's, uh, not, it's less likely than the, you know, the other scenario. Yes, sir, you in the way back. Hi, I'm Takeshi Nakamura, trade researcher from Central Union Mortgage Cooperatives Japan. And uh, seeing United States withdrawing TPP, China recently ramping up its effort to uh, uh, advance RCEP, I mean at the conclusion in 2017, and some of the TPP countries uh, have already signaled their uh, intention that they may shift their uh, uh, focus to that. And although Trump administration strongly bashed uh, multilateral trade deals like TPP, uh, they have also harshly criticized China, and I think uh, they want to wait and see China taking over the trade initiative in Asia Pacific. So could you just uh, kindly elaborate your expectation that uh, without uh, t advancing TPP, how Trump administration would uh, address the growing uh, uh, presence uh, of China uh, in the trade uh, platform in Asia Pacific. Thank you very much. Uh, so in, in the question is, in the absence of TPP, how will the Trump administration address China's growing economic clout in the region? I, I think that's really an open question. I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer for you. Um, one possible mechanism might be through um, negotiation of bilateral trade agreements, as we mentioned earlier. Um, we don't know too much yet about what level of support the new administration will have for um, programs like OPEC and EXIM that help U.S. companies to compete in markets in Southeast Asia and other areas of the world. Um, and I, I think there's not yet been an answer to what, what's, the, what's the alternative strategy uh, in the absence of TPP. Um, I, I'm only guessing this, but um, my, what I am interpreting from what I hear from Trump 
is that as the Obama administration intensified its push to ratify TPP, um, and it had Hillary Clinton won the expectation for the administration was to pass it through the lame duck session. And in doing so, they really played up the security card to say that this wasn't just a, a trade deal, that it was about stability and security and uh, diplomatic presence of the United States in the region. I would think that that is precisely what Trump doesn't like, that this is a trade deal. It should have nothing to do with, with foreign policy, that if it doesn't make economic sense, then that's what he would see as a bad deal. That's how I'm seeing it. And in answer to your question about, okay, well, no TPP, RCEP goes, what happens? I don't think that is, it, it, in his equation, if I'm correct, then it would be like, okay, that should not be a factor in establishing new trade deals moving forward. No? Yeah. 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 You, sir, in the blue shirt. Hi, thank you uh, very much for the panel. Uh, Dan Zofio, CSIS. Um, I apologize for sort of injecting another uh, dimension of complexity, but I know one thing we heard something about during the campaign was the possibility of a reset in Russia relations. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that might affect um, U.S. relations in Asia, specifically, for example, um, what might the spillover effects for that be on Sino-Russian cooperation or uh, Russo-Japanese diplomacy? Thank you. Anybody want to take a stab? I'll take a quick stab at that one, but this is just you know an off-the-cuff um, sort of response because I hadn't really considered that uh, that issue. But you know, the reset with Russia could potentially um, be conducive to a hedge uh, against uh, China in that in that regard. Uh, if you look at you know if if U.S.-Russia relations is to improve. Um, you know, that could potentially, uh, you know, worry people in Beijing to sort of see whether or not there might be, um, you know, less friction um, between um, the United States and Russia that could potentially, um, you know, worry uh, the PRC. Uh, we've got time for one more question, but I'd like to cheat here and get questions from this gentleman here who's been very patient, and you, sir, since I... Um, broke your heart a second ago. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Jean-François Boitin with a French economic think tank. Two quick questions. Uh, TPP would have been a big step forward. What if we have steps backward? And I would argue that Carrier yesterday was a step backward on globalization because globalization is free movement of goods but also of capital. If you prevent companies from investing abroad, you are taking steps backward. What impact would it have on Southeast Asian countries in particular? And what would the impact of a 45% tariff on Chinese goods be on Taiwanese companies and the Taiwan economy in general? And before we get to an answer, sir, do you want to add uh, your question to the to the stack? Uh, mine is very quick. I was just wondering what, uh, I'm David Bonus. I was wondering what impact uh, Trump administration would have on the Asia Investment uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, China's uh, com competitor to the World Bank. So the questions are, 
and feel free to engage them at, at will, is the carrier move good policy as it relates to Asian, particularly South Asia, the 45% tariff. Um, you asked how that would affect Taiwan, if I'm not mistaken, uh, on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the most recent question. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe, well, I'll start on the Southeast Asia question. Um, there are already concerns in, in many quarters in Southeast Asia that the Trump administration will implement policies or pressures that will uh, force a repatriation of jobs, uh, particularly in business processing, as one that's, that's come up. Uh, several times. Um, certainly that would have a detrimental effect on employment. Um, it may potentially, depending on how those interactions play out, impact our overall trade relations uh, in some of those countries um, if it's felt that those uh, pressures are being uh, applied in a way that's in violation of WTO rules or other agreements. Um, so that could have some, some broader ramifications, certainly, um, not only in terms of the economic dimension, but also the diplomatic uh, on AIIB, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, certainly, I, I know from conversations that many U.S. companies are interested and eager to participate in the bidding for AIIB contracts, which is uh, ostensibly not limited only to members, so that's, that's a positive thing. Um, and there are many in the U.S. who have advocated that um, the Obama administration should have joined. Um, it's very hard to, to say, again, speculating um, Mr. Trump is a businessman. Uh, perhaps he would see the, the logic in that and, and be more open to joining. However, I think it would be extremely difficult to get uh, congressional approval for any kind of appropriation. So uh, on balance, I see the, the prospects of the U.S. Uh, joining as being fairly low, um, even if it is more appealing to the next president. Uh, I think on the question on you know uh, Taiwan products, um, you know, uh, being affected by if Trump is uh, follows through with the vow to enact a 45% tax on all Chinese products, uh, for A is that it's it's highly unlikely. It, it requires an extraordinary and emergency, I think, uh, declaration in order for that to actually pan out because. And, um, and, and that the, the rules at least uh, only allows, I think, 15% um, at the moment. And so there would be a violation of WT rules and it would require extraordinary measures in order to uh, implement. Uh, so the more likely um, you know, scenario, which is not, and that's relative, right? The more relative scenario would be that it would be a more selective uh, tariffs on certain products. But then whether or not that would actually, uh, you know, um, that could affect, um, that would target uh, Taiwan um, manufactured um, uh, products is uh, it, um, I don't you know I don't know, right? Um, so don't really have a sort of a good answer for you on that one. Um, so on the issue of IIB, I think I would just you know reiterate what you know Meredith had earlier said you know in the sense that there are have been there have been some senior advisors to the Trump campaign that have you know uh, indicated that. They felt that it was, uh, you know, a mistake to not, um, you know, to oppose the AIAB to begin, um, and so, you know, but whether or not that means that the United States will be actively involved in the in the future, you know, is also an unknown. Well, uh, thank you to our audience for coming. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for hosting. Uh, thank you to our panelists for sharing their time and expertise. <laughs>